0: of effectively wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index of BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hey there, listener email show. Anything you yes. want to talk about before we get to that? Uh, two
1: quick things. Two quick things. One, I I have been trying to. Uh, well, okay. So yesterday I talked about. I tried to talk about rich teams getting to hold on to their prospects. And I don't think I expressed it that well, and I've been trying to condense it, so I'm just going to try one more time. I feel like we are moving toward, and we have seen the league moving toward, and we'll continue to see the league moving toward, a situation where, uh, rather than poor teams building off of prospects and rich teams trading their prospects for the poor team's veterans who are getting more expensive, that you are now seeing the exact opposite, where only the rich teams can afford to get into the free market for guys like David Price, and therefore the poor and middle market teams have to trade their prospects to get those guys in smaller commitments. And so, uh, in fact, it will now be the rich teams that get to develop their prospects and the poor teams that will be trading them away. Which is uh, the point just being it's a flip from 10 years ago, from what we used
0: to think about small and mid-market teams. I think you nailed it this time.
1: All right. Uh, Now, I want to know, we haven't discuss this, but are are we doing non revelatory rumors again this year? I I think so. I, assume I think the bar if, will be high. Yeah the bar, the bar will, will be, be high. high. You have to, yeah, new ground needs to be right. but I wanted to point out two Okay. I don't have the exact wording. But one was that the Astros owner is a big fan of Araldis Chapman. Not sure how that will matter. That was the rumor. Did you see that one?
0: <laughs> no. Uh, all right. I'll I'll get the exact wording uh, for this yeah, one. Yeah. Exact wording matters with non-revelatory rumors it uh really conveys exactly how non-revelatory they are
1: here we go it's our friend Kraz. i've been told that astros owner jim crane is a big aroldis chapman fan not sure how that enters into the equation
0: <laughs> okay well who isn't
1: is that it that revelatory
0: i mean maybe i guess it could be <laughs> Who, who is not a Eroldis Chapman fan? Everyone wants Eroldis Chapman.
1: It, the implication, at least, is that he's a bigger fan than others, and maybe that he's a bigger fan than those in the front office, and that he might exert influence. And so I feel like there is there are words left out that make it revelatory and that you can assume. So if he's been told, for instance, by the Astros GM, who's like, yeah, man, my owner is constantly talking about Eroldis Chapman, that would be interesting, and and you can I think you can assume that there might be some of that subtext there. So I feel like this is an example of a revelatory rumor that is worded in a benign way because, you know, sometimes your sources require it. Uh-huh. Okay. The second one was just tweeted uh, by Buster. At least two teams monitoring Ioannis Cespedes' market and prepared to jump in to take a shot if his price tag falls enough.
0: <laughs> okay, I- Yeah, I think, I mean...
1: That's a classic uh, uh, non-Revolution rumor where it's like, well, yeah, of course, if the price tag falls enough, then I'm involved too. I think what makes this a classic, an instant classic, is at least two teams fall into this camp. So 28 teams can't confirm, cannot confirm that 28 teams will sign him if his price tag falls enough, but at least two will.
0: (laughs) Yeah, at least two are monitoring. So that doesn't even mean that they would necessarily jump in. They're just, they're paying attention to... What his market is, you would think that almost every team is monitoring Mm -hmm. Okay, that's all I've got Okay, So one just quick thing, Jody emailed us about our last email show, episode 774 We got a question about using a better hitter to bat for Andrelton Simmons in the first inning of a road game And we concluded that it wasn't worth it, that he wasn't a bad enough hitter And there were other reasons not to do it But as we probably should have noted, and as Jody notes, there is some precedent for things like this. And he sends an excerpt from Earl Earl Weaver's Sabre bio, and I will read that very quickly. In 1975, he adjusted for Mark Belanger's weak bat during late season division races by listing Royal Stillman to hit leadoff and play shortstop on the road. Stillman, who was called up from the minors once rosters expanded, hit 500, 3 3-for-6 in those situations, so he usually gave the team an immediate advantage. When the Orioles took the field in the bottom of the first, Belanger would trot out to short and hit leadoff the rest of the game.
1: Royal Stillman, by the way. Career, career, 89 games, 213 batting average, 77 OPS plus, 634 OPS. It is not as though he had... You know, like, uh, Mar- like remember when Mark McGuire had plantar fasciitis, uh-huh. and I think Tony LaRusso would sometimes bat him third in uh, on road games so that he could hit once and never have to step on the field? Uh-huh. It's not like he had bad foot Mark McGuire. He had Royal Stillman. <laughs> Who the next year hit 091-200-091.
0: Right. That's a a gutsy move, Earl. And the next year, Belanger had a 100 OPS plus. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs)
1: So not the best.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The league never stopped Weaver from using that particular ploy. He did it again in 1979, but it did pull the plug on another one of his strategies. In 1980, he fell into the habit of listing Steve Stone as his designated hitter. The motivation was simple. If the opposing pitcher was knocked out of the game early, Weaver wouldn't lose a position player. If he wanted to change the DH to match up better with the reliever, it was perfectly legal, but the league passed a rule against it, citing that the stunt distorted hitting statistics. Which is an interesting rationale for outlawing something. Mm -hmm. So, some precedent. And Mm -hmm. even in the precedent, it probably wasn't the greatest idea, really, even if it happened to work out.
1: There is a good lesson in the in the latter one, which is that uh, a lot of times you might think there's a little edge to be gained, but it's actually pretty, if, if it's annoying to everybody else, they'll just shut it down. And so you only get it for a little bit. And so whenever, sometimes we talk about whether there are ways that you could exploit these various things, like by planting a tree and so on in the middle of the field, and uh, and. Oftentimes, we will come down on, yeah, sure, and then they'll, they'll tell you the next day that you can't do that.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. they can just do that. Like it's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. There's a meta game going on,
0: yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got some good questions. I'll start with one from Mick. I don't understand how every year there are players who were successful reclamation projects, Hap, Hill, Murphy to a point, yet they almost never re-sign with the team that helped them rediscover the magic. Considering Hap signed for three years and $36 million with Toronto and disregarding what Pittsburgh could or would offer, what discount do you think the Pirates could have gotten for Hap and still signed him? Or, with most of these situations, is it a combination of greed and ego that players are unwilling to cut their old team any slack? Hmm. You'd think that there would be more than just a hometown discount. It would be bigger than a hometown discount if, right. you, it, if you were it, the it, team that picked a guy up off the scrap heap and turned him into someone who could get three years and 36 million a you'd be worried I'd be worried that if I were separated from that team or that coach who Heck did yeah. that thing for me that something bad would happen I mean did people talked about that with like Joel Pinero and Dave I was Duncan, just right?
1: I, I literally have Joel Pinero's
0: <laughs> uh, uh, baseball reference page open right now yeah yeah I guess that really stuck in our minds
1: did. Well, he went to the Angels, so I wrote a lot about it. And so Uh, that's one, maybe why he stuck in my mind. So what
0: were his, what was his progression?
1: Uh, Well, he was essentially like in 2007, the Red Sox tried to make him a reliever. Do you remember that? When he couldn't stay healthy and he wasn't very good for Seattle. He got worse and worse. He was a former top prospect. And then he went to Boston and he was going to be the closer. And uh, so for that, like the spring of 2007, he was like a trendy fantasy pick because now he's a, He's a starter going to closer, and we knew how that worked out, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and then he was horrible in relief for Boston. He had an ERA over five, and after 31 games in relief, they traded him to the Cardinals, who immediately put him back into the starting rotation uh, and had in two, uh, in the next, uh, I don't know, say, uh, hang on, actually, I can't tell you exactly, in three. Uh, Three partial years with the Cardinals, he had a 101 ERA+. plus. His third year, he went 15-12 and 12 with a 117 ERA+. Plus. Uh, and then went to Anaheim and had almost the exact same year. Uh, although with some, the, the the distribution of his peripherals was a little bit different. But he was still an above average pitcher for the Angels in his first year. And then his
0: second year, he had some injuries and then was never good again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you would think, A, there'd be a little bit of gratitude to the team that, yeah. that made you good. And B, there would be fear that if you were separated, that you would lose the magic and you'd go back to being whatever you were before. So you would think, and I don't know. I mean, he he says they almost never re-sign with the team. I don't I don't know if that's. I mean, I guess the odds are that that they would rarely re-sign with the team just because you're on the open market and things happen. I don't know if they re-sign with that team more often than you would expect from chance alone or something like that. That that's possible, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. I would I would be willing to entertain a discount in that kind of situation.
1: Yeah, I'm. I agree. I'm surprised on on both counts. And uh, it, look, not not to make everything about stomp, uh, but uh, it is sometimes uh, it is sometimes surprising when you're uh, in a front office to see how uh, how good people don't value loyalty in baseball like it's a because they're really good people you know they're good people you know that it's not a bad thing that they're doing and you have to kind of recalibrate what loyalty means in baseball because there isn't I think there is an expectation in baseball that you're gonna move around a lot that the team's gonna trade you that you're gonna trade the team that you're gonna find the right spot and that it is a uh, it is a uh, a job that involves a lot of uh, roaming and so maybe it's i I'm sure that it's I guess what I'm saying is I'm sure that it is surprising to the front offices sometimes that j-hap shows so a little interest in <laughs> giving them a deal yeah <laughs> uh but it's probably not surprising to any of j-hap's teammates
0: uh-huh. okay michael wants to know what kind of contract would alex rodriguez get on the open market this winter coming off his 33 homer 131 ops plus campaign
1: Oh, wow. Good question. It is a good question. Uh, and he's Alex Rodriguez still,
0: right? He's still. He's still all the all the baggage or, or anti-baggage or whatever it is now. He has it. So first, let's say it wasn't Alex Rodriguez, but let's say uh,
1: David Ortiz had had the exact same progression from 2010 to 2015, where he'd gone from being MVP candidate, MVP leader, to uh, good hitter, to injured, to misses full year, is almost 40, and then has this bounce back season. And everybody loves him. He's David Ortiz. Mm-hmm. Then what does is, what is that guy get? He, Rodriguez was a three-win player. Baseball reference. Other than two thousand thirteen, which was the, the the very bad injury year, and then missing two thousand fourteen, he's essentially been a three-win player for you know the last five years. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and, and he's,
1: he's also an old he's also an
0: old DH. Yes, right. So there's a limited market for that kind of player. Mm-hmm. I mean, he gets a one-year deal, and I'd say he. Gets uh, $9 million.
1: Yeah. The Jim Tomey pre- – Jim Tomey is kind of this precedent, right, except without the injury. Everybody loved Jim Tomey, and he also was you know, on the downswing of his career at 37, 38, and then had a big age 39 season. It, he didn't play every day, but age 39, which is the same age A-Rod is, 108 games, 182 OPS plus, the best of his career, <laughs> yeah. a second best of his career, Finished 18th in MVP voting as a part-time DH. <laughs> and then, let's see, 2011, he made $3 million,
0: huh? which is crazy. Yeah.
1: He made $3 million
0: <laughs> after that. Yeah, that is pretty crazy.
1: And, I mean, I remember this partly because even at the time, it seemed crazy that Tomy would get so little interest. He and of course,
0: reclamation project who gave a discount. Mmm,
1: Maybe, because <laughs> <laughs> the twins. Uh, could be. I would say that, uh, I don't know. I mean, look, Mor- Kendry's Morales got two and 16. Yeah. And obviously. he's coming up, Much younger. Yeah, he was coming off nothing. Is it really that absurd to think that a guy at that age, stage in his career who wanted a two-year deal couldn't get a two-year deal? I think
0: it's unlikely that he would get a two-year deal. Really?
1: Even if he wanted that, even if he <laughs> went out there saying, I want two, give me two. I'm signing for whoever gives me two first. Yeah, I think so. Let's just say let's say that he that let's say that's his number one priority is to get a two year deal. How many millions could he get for a two? Because obviously someone would sign if you're saying one year and nine. then sure. mm-hmm. Someone would sign him for two years and nine. Uh-huh. What would what would be the highest two year offer he'd get? I mean, Michael Kadire got two and twenty four or twenty five or whatever, and he cost a draft pick. And he's he's Michael Kadire.
0: It was <laughs> 221. two twenty one.
1: Two twenty one. Yeah. And you know he's Michael Kadire. He's He's worse than than A Rod is, right? Yeah. So, and just as fragile. And yeah. Although I guess I guess
0: could play. Yeah. He was coming. He left. was basically coming off an A Rod season. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Except yeah. he was thirty-four.
1: Very trajectory for his over the three or four years that he hit free agency, but uh, is younger, but has less extreme goodness in his past. Yes. I'm gonna say that A Rod would get. If, or David Ortiz, if it were David Ortiz, uh-huh. I will say it gets 2, two and 20. Okay. David Ortiz with Arod's numbers. Now, the question is Does Arod's baggage matter anymore?
0: I think it matters. I don't think it matters so much that he would get the Bonds treatment like he might have, you know, a year ago. Now I think he's rehabilitated himself. He's been a. Good citizen and a good broadcaster And he's kind of transitioned Into the Giambi Clubhouse mentor type in In a sense and everyone talks about what a Baseball savant he is And how analytical and Great to talk to and so There's still the chance that he tests positive for something, or he gets busted or something, and then you have a scandal on your hands. But other than that, like he's not really a cancer in the way that some people are. Not even the way that Bonds was, really. He's not really like a bad guy that people hate being around, and it's not like he gets the superstar treatment and everyone is jealous of him because of that or something. It's just that he cheats sometimes and he and then he lies about it and then he cheats again. But he doesn't really hurt anyone when he's not doing that.
1: No, it seems like he used to be more. Like, his teammates used to hate him, right? Yeah, yeah, that was uh,
0: maybe just the contract. And And it
1: might have just been the Jeter factor if Jeter Mm -hmm. hated him. And maybe that's what we heard. But uh, you're right. It feels like he's. I wonder how much how much of the remaining baggage got wiped out by his broadcasting. Because yeah, really good. Like re- everybody liked him. But although I, that's just baseball Twitter. I mean, I we live in a very small community. Yes, <laughs> And it's hard to know. Sometimes we're we. I feel like we're a cult. And uh, so I don't know if that's a, a shared opinion across baseball. Yeah, I don't know. I would guess that A-Rod would have very little package at this point. That there would be a few teams that wouldn't want him, but mm-hmm. most teams would. Like, I bet the Red Sox would sign him right now. Uh-huh. And I bet the Dodgers would sign him. Eh, I bet the Dodgers would sign him. Yeah. Eh, maybe. Eh. I don't think the Angels would sign him. I bet Artie Moreno hates him.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, so there, there would be a smaller market, so he'd have fewer people bidding. And his market would be limited anyway, so he'd get less. I think he'd get less. Okay. But he'd get something. All right. Does he he hits free agency next year? He has
1: two more. Unbelievable. <laughs> it goes forever. Never. <laughs> never does. Uh. <laughs> okay, let me ask you a question right now. So yeah, he hits free agency after twenty seventeen. Will he play twenty eighteen?
0: I'll say no. I'll say he. I'll say he's well liked enough that he like I don't know. He's he's never gonna get a, a retirement tour, but. I don't know.
1: He'll only be, be, if he hits 20 in each of the next two years, he'll only be 35
0: away. Oof, yeah. Maybe. Maybe if he's that close, I would put the odds at 30%. Yeah, that's about right.
1: I would, I think it's probably even a little lower.
0: Yeah, it might be lower. All right. Yeah, and he might want to retire a Yankee or something like that. So he might not want to, to string it along if he's not actually close to the record. All right, very quick one. Dave says, when reading about the Trumbo trade, I saw a reference to his per 162 games average over the last several years, implying that that would be a typical year. What is the actual number of games that would represent a typical year? So that you would quote a player's per X game average to get a typical year. I've thought about that before. I think uh, it varies by player maybe a little bit, but if you were just going to say a generic player, I think the... Well, if you if you just look at qualified hitters from last year, and there were 140 or whatever. The average number of games played by those players was 147. So that seems like a typical full season to me. 147 games. You get 15 off, or you get a 15-day DL stint in there.
1: Yeah, FanGraphs uses uh, 150 for their. Basically, they're prorated UZR. Right. I, I don't know why 150, but I have I don't know if it's influenced by that, but I guess I would have said 150. Sounds about right. 150 is a full year to me.
0: Yeah. If I saw 150, I'd say that guy is durable.
1: The, <laughs> weird, thing, the weird thing, here's the weird thing, Ben. Mark, Mark Trumbo games played in his career... 149 144 159 142 it's not like this is like sean markham where you like have to have to cherry pick and cheat like he plays full years just look at his years like what point is being made (laughs) Uh, if only trumbo could stay healthy once
0: (laughs) right yeah it's a shorthand like baseball reference has a 162 game average line and you look at that and you think it's really good because most guys don't play 162 games so it's somewhat misleading, maybe.
1: Okay. It's like, wow, uh, over 162-game season, Trumbo would would average 31 homers, right? And in his four full seasons, he has averaged like 28 homers. So <laughs> just can't you just say he's averaged 20? Yeah,
0: he has actually averaged 26.2 homers a year. Okay. Next question comes from another Sam. You guys were talking about players picking teams for reasons like restaurants and culture. And I wanted to submit J. Bruce's no-trade clause for consideration. It includes seven teams. Yankees, Blue Jays, A's, Red Sox, Twins, Marlins, Diamondbacks, and Rays. I won't even give my thoughts because I want to see what patterns you can draw from this.
1: Yankees, Blue Jays, A's, Red Sox, Twins, Marlins, Diamondbacks, Rays. Yeah. So it kind of looks like the merged the two strategies that people use in these sorts of things Uh uh-huh the yankees and the red Sox. the presumption being that uh those are teams that are a likely to try to get you and b you can uh you can squeeze for an extension when they do and then the rest are bad teams
0: (laughs) yeah well i guess so yeah or or bad places to play i mean yeah, bad yeah, places you to don't play. Want to, don't want to play in the Marlins. Maybe he hates the trop. Yeah, maybe he hates the trop. The A's are... Uh, you I mean, know Minnesota's they... cold. <laughs> yeah. Arizona's hot. I mean, he's from Texas, so I don't know if the heat bothers him.
1: Yeah, I wonder... Because, I mean, it's a little scattered.
0: It is, yeah. It doesn't really seem to follow a coherent strategy to maximize the value of the no-trade clause, but he must have his reasons. We should call him. Yeah, what he has against Minnesota and Miami and Phoenix and Tampa Bay. Yeah. Can Art. you find an example of a typical no-trade clause if you just googled some prominent player?
1: Yeah, it it does feel like some there's a real opening for a blog here on every team's no-trade exemptions, <laughs> yeah. every play, sorry, every player's no-trade exemptions mm-hmm. because I would be curious. I would like to do some analysis on yeah. them. And I I don't know how often they get published they can get updated
0: yeah often it seems incomplete like there's a report that some team is on it but it's not the complete report but maybe players would be honest about it because they put them on the no trade class, so they don't have to go there maybe in some cases so they have no reason not to say that they don't like that city
1: yeah i don't know i think i would guess that there's a that most of them look like this but maybe with a li- it's weird that he put every al east team on except for the orioles yeah. Is there a geograph there's no real geography here. They're not clustered. Like AJ Burnett's were always like he couldn't fly, his wife doesn't fly. Yeah, right. And so he his would be everybody who wasn't like basically on the
0: uh what is that train called? Cell
1: Cella? Acela. Acela, yeah.
0: yeah. Bruce has east coast, west coast, midwest. He's all over the place.
1: Yeah. I wonder if any hitter has ever put Rockies on there. <laughs> He's yeah. got three of the you know, he's got three of the four expansion teams on here, so maybe he is old school and doesn't want to go to any of those new
0: teams. <laughs> I don't know. He values the, the history and the tradition too much.
1: No, I do think I actually though, I think it would be interesting to talk to every player about their no trade clauses and start a blog on that topic.
0: Yeah, probably would. Mm-hmm. All right. well we haven't done that so that's the end of this answer <laughs> play index sure play index is also a uh, an answer to an email
1: this email was sent by scott one of our favorite emailers and he asked has any team since 1988 obviously ever started a season without a single player who'd been in the league long enough to reach free agency. To be sure, Mike Trout is making free agent money, but wouldn't qualify under the above definition because he hasn't accumulated sufficient service time. I checked cots, but didn't see an easy way to answer this question. Can play index do it? Can Play Index do it, Ben? It's a pretty big ask for Play Index. Oh, but it can do it. It it'll get it gets you about ninety percent of the way. You do have to do a second step. But I looked at all seasons from nineteen eighty eight to twenty fifteen. I used the batting season finder. So any player, the great thing about the batting season finder is that it includes, I think, it includes everybody, even if they didn't bat. Mm-hmm. And so that's nice. And so I uh, looked for teams with most players meeting some qualification. Sorted by ascending, so it would actually give me the teams with the fewest players matching the qualifications. And it was, and I set it for simply seventh season on. So any player with seven who is playing their seventh season in the majors. Because we know that if it's your sixth season or earlier, by definition you cannot have hit free agency. Now, seventh season doesn't necessarily get you there either. Because if you're playing partial seasons, this is not the same as service time. If you're playing partial seasons, then they won't count as four years for your service time. You could play nine or ten years if they were included lots of time in the minors and still not be eligible for free agency. But at least we know that from the seventh season on, you cannot be a free agent. So I looked for teams with the fewest number, the smallest number of players matching this criteria of it being their seventh season or later. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just to double check, it gave me 810 seasons. I uh, checked, and there have been 810 seasons since 1980. So we know that all are accounted for. That is always one place that you can go wrong with the play index: is that the zeros don't necessarily show up uh, in your results. And so you might think that the team with one example is the fewest, but the zeros don't show up. But in this case, all there are no zeros; every team shows up. So you can never uh,
0: really go wrong with the play index.
1: No, you can't. You you can miss. You can do it wrong. Yes. Yeah. You can be too quick mm-hmm. and careless. There are a few teams that have like four guys, five guys. And, and this is not opening day. I went for the whole season. I don't care if it's opening day. I want the whole season. So there are a few guys with four or five players who were seventh season on and it's conceivable that some of those guys were in fact not free agent eligible but in I think in every one of those cases I found at least one player who had clearly been free agent eligible that they were a veteran like like for instance the 96 Cardinals had a few guys who were six uh, seven seasons or more and one of them was Mark McGuire who was in like his 11th year so we can rule out that team right Mm -hmm. they definitely had a free agent eligible player now there are three teams with three players that match this, and I was just going to go one by one and check to see if all those guys had actually hit free agency, but I was able to conclusively uh, rule out two of them, and then as I was going to do the last one, I thought, ah, I'm not going to waste my time. I'm just going to go straight to the team that has two. The 1994 Expos had two players that were in their seventh season or later, so I just have to see whether that seventh season came with enough service time to have hit free agency or not. Those players are Randy Milligan, who played his final season in 1994 for the Expos. (laughs) Uh It was his seventh season, actually his eighth season overall, but the first one he only played two games. The second one he played 40 games. And looking at his service time and looking at his salaries and looking at the fact that he was traded the previous offseason, which implies, of course, that he was absolutely not a free agent, then I can conclude that Randy Milligan, had never been free agent eligible, so then I go to the next one. Ken Hill, seventh season, was in 1994, but in his first season he only started one game, pitched in four, not enough to get him to free agency, and in fact uh, I don't even think he was a free agent the next year because he was traded in that offseason as well, although it's possible he had signed an extension. But I can say conclusively that that was at most Ken Hill's sixth season of service time and he had not hit free agency yet, He was not free agent eligible at any point in his career, which means that the nineteen ninety four Expos did not play a single player who had reached free agency. Every single one was Arb or Earlier.
0: Wow. Pretty impressive. Jonah's gonna be really excited to hear about this. This is a fun fact.
1: This is gonna be the the (laughs) epilogue. He's gonna have like for the paperback, he's gonna have to I guess he's already got a paperback. But for the
0: we should call him. (laughs) Okay. We should tell him this news. You think he'll be excited? Yeah, I think so. Go for it. (laughs) All right. Colin Joyner Carey.
2: Gary
0: speaking Jonah it's Ben and Sam hey
2: how's it going okay
0: we are uh, in the middle of a podcast and we just did a play index segment and there's an expos related fun fact that we want to share with you on the air just
2: okay, ju- do it.
1: just just to get re-
0: your reaction we don't have any
1: we're not requiring <laughs> any insight we just want to see you open the present on Christmas morning see that it is socks and still go through with pretending that you're excited because someone put some thought into that present <laughs>
2: Considering that I had a spectacularly important phone call that I'm waiting on, uh, this was an like literally now, this was an uh, interesting surprise, but let's do this thing.
1: Yeah, sure. All right, we'll do it quick. So the 1994 Expos, so far as we can tell, to the best of our knowledge with the help of Playindex, are the only team in history that did not have a single player appear the entire year who had reached free agency yet. Ever? Ever. Every, every single player... Was six years of service time or less?
2: No. What about like Randy Milligan and Lenny Webster in those
1: guys? <laughs> dude, <laughs> let, <laughs> we, Randy, dude. Milligan, Randy Milligan was one of the two that we had to check by hand because Randy Milligan had well, – it, it was his eighth season, but he yeah. had not yet reached six years of service time because the first year he only played very briefly. The second year he played only briefly. I think he would have been a free agent the next year, but uh, instead retired. Uh, Lenny Webster at that point was only in his fifth year. He was 29, but it was only his fifth year.
0: And the other edge case was Ken, Ken- Hill.
2: Ken Hill, yeah. We well, think- Ken, Ken Hill, of course, was gone after the next season. Yeah, go ahead.
0: And I,
1: we think that Ken Hill hit six years of service time that season and so would have been a free agent. Although I think he also maybe had signed it they in. They traded six- him, though. They traded be him because right. well they traded yeah. him but I think he had signed it had he signed an extension at that point because
2: Oh, oh hell no they didn't give out money to anybody <laughs> Oh before. yeah that's a good point There's no chance <laughs> Yeah that's they they let point. Larry Walker walk without offering him arbitration at the end of the year uh, to get a draft pick on the possible 0.001% chance that Larry Walker, one of the 10 best players in baseball and a Canadian and the heart and soul of that team might accept a one year deal uh, in order to stay with the team as opposed to signing a multi-year deal elsewhere. So I guarantee you they did not give Ken Hill an extension. Yeah,
1: you're right. He was, you're right. He hit free agency the year after. I think that in fact uh, I was misled by the salaries. I think he was a super two. And so he did get Uh three years of ARB under them, uh, but uh, was not yet to six years of service time.
2: Wow. In my mind, Randy Milligan was like seventy two years old that year. This is an amazing stat. You totally made my week.
0: Yeah. <laughs> this is
2: your favorite team
0: of all time, right? And we just we it, told you something you didn't know about it. And you wrote I the book.
2: It. You wrote the book about this franchise. I did, and now I'm gonna go on Twitter and just say nice things about your book like fifty <laughs> times and get people to buy it constantly so that I can return the favor. He <laughs> was Randy
1: Milligan was thirty two, by the way,
2: that year. So and I was 19, so, I mean, in my mind, it makes sense that I would think that he was 17 years
1: old. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Gardner. Jeff Gardner was the uh, only—Jeff uh, Gardner and I Jeff Fasero. wow. There were three 30-year-olds. Uh, Milligan, Jeff Gardner, and, and Jeff Facero. But Gardner was only in his fourth
2: year and never played again,
1: and Jeff Facero was only in his fourth year, having debuted
2: at age 28. I'm now going to give you another research assignment that you could do on a future show. Uh, and you'd have to kind of parse this a little bit because the relief, the specialization, relief era. Maybe you have to start with the beginning of Tony La Russa's career. But I would venture to say that the '94 Expos, if you were inning relief innings thrown by left-handers, than virtually any other team in the last, let's say, 25 or 30 years. They were that, all righties, the good ones. And Felipe Alou did not give a damn. And it totally worked at a great bullpen.
1: Well, that is the easiest thing in the world to search. So <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. I'm going to the Split Finder. I'm going to 1988. Yeah. I'm going to split type, platoon splits. Oh, can I do – I can't do two though. I can't do two splits at the same time.
0: Mm, the double mm. split always gets you. The double split,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it would, I can't do it in real time. I could do it very easily at another point, but I can't do it live. On we'll call
2: you play. back some other day. <laughs> yeah. By the way, nothing more riveting to podcast listeners than Sam Miller calling on baseball reference in the middle of the show to do a third. That's, that's, that's every that's show. Just, that's like that's a why second. you're an award-winning podcast.
0: <laughs> All right, well, everyone go buy Jonah Carey's Expo's book, Up, Up, and Away, even though it does not contain this fun fact, because Jonah just didn't do his research, just didn't do enough interviews, (laughs) didn't come across this fun fact. But maybe in the second paperback edition, he can slip it in there somewhere.
2: Uh, My next book will not be about baseball, but I love you both very much.
0: When Montreal gets a baseball team back, you will do a a new edition of Up, Up, and Away, and then you can put this fun fact in there.
2: Not true. I will actually be the Magic Johnson level figurehead owner of the team. That's actually what my role will be with that franchise. It's not mutually exclusive. You can do both. Fair, fair. I like it. All Thank right. you, fellas. <laughs> See ya. Hopefully
0: this was a nice fix for people who missed the Jonah Carey podcast. <laughs> Good luck Figure. with your very important call. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. All right.
1: Done. It's funny. When we, next.
0: when we call people unexpectedly. they're always waiting for a very important call. It's just yep. like Ned Carver.
1: Play index promo code BP30 dollars for the
0: whole year
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you can be if you get it quickly you can beat me to the left-handed relievers uh, record that Jonah <laughs> hypothesized.
0: yeah all right. couple more. Darius says I just read the head game and in the chapter on Warren Spawn he writes that spawn almost never started against the Dodgers for three years in the 1950s. Because the Dodgers' powerful right-handed lineup and the short fence and left at Ebbets Field were both bad matchups for him, I checked Spahn's game log to confirm, and sure enough, between 1954 and 1957, Spahn pitched only a few innings against the Dodgers. I also found a Joe Posnansky piece commenting on this. Do you think there is ever a situation in which teams might adopt this approach now? The change in reliever usage has obviously changed the role of the starter significantly since Spahn's career, But in extreme situations, such as a fringy left-hander up against the Jays in the Rogers Center, would a team get enough benefit from skipping that starter, calling up a spot starter, or shuffling their rotation to ensure that the pitcher in question missed that series? Would it have too much of a negative impact on the pitcher's confidence, even if the team thought it was worthwhile otherwise? This is, uh... Something that we talk about in the playoffs a little bit when you can, when you have the flexibility to decide that you don't want to start someone on the road, or you want to start Johnny Cueto in Kansas City, or you don't want to start Derek Holland against the Blue Jays, or whatever it is. But during the regular season, it's it's obviously much more difficult. And and yeah, this used to be much more common. I mean, I, I think teams used to shift around starters sometimes to like Whitey Ford would start against the Red Sox a lot or you know whoever the rival of the Yankees was at that time. It was just more flexible. You would kind of use them at higher leverage games to a certain extent whereas we don't really see any of that now. Almost none of that now. So, is there enough leeway? I mean the
1: Well, the crazy thing is that I mean, I guess maybe Warren Spahn is uh, maybe they moved him up. If they if they bumped him up and threw him on short rest or something, Mm -hmm. Then it would make, but I mean, like Warren Spawn is your best pitcher.
0: Like, you don't (laughs) want to,
1: you wouldn't want to do anything that would limit the number of innings he would throw, even if it is a bad match. Like, Warren Spawn in a bad matchup is still your best pitcher, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, sure. And you're not, you're certainly not saving him for the postseason because he ain't playing the Dodgers in the postseason in 1955. And so it does sort of feel weird. I'd be interested to see how they did this without it looking dumb because, like, can't you imagine being 14? in 1955 and they're like yeah we're not gonna start spawn against the dodgers your head would explode
0: (laughs) yeah how'd they get away with that
1: we should call warren spawn
0: (laughs) Uh, yeah i don't think he's available but so you can't i mean calling up a spot starter is not really something you would do because it's not like teams just have good starters that they're not using for no reason i mean you could flip-flop guys i mean occasionally you'll see a team like If there's an extra off day earlier in the season or something, they'll skip the fifth starter. That kind of thing happens. So there's a little shuffling that goes on. But uh, I don't know. With a five-man rotation and fewer double headers, maybe it's harder with fewer double headers. I mean, you have fewer off days. It's a 162-game season, and, and you play six days a week or seven days a week. And so it's tough. There's not a lot of flexibility. And everyone has a five-man rotation, so that's another thing. <laughs> like, it, It's not a three- or four-man, so you're kind of having to use everyone just to get through it. Yeah,
1: there's a—I uh, I think that one of the lessons of, of Russell Carlton—like, one of the sort of large overriding re- lessons of Russell Carlton's work— is that most of the time when you think you've got a plan to squeeze a little extra value out of some opportunity or situation, the difference is so small that it almost inevitably is the case that you should just use your best players. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so I think like we had this conversation a couple times with Stomper's about whether it would make sense to shift the rotation to have a certain player pitching against a certain team either to leverage that player or to avoid matchups and ballpark issues and um, it never got much traction.
0: Mm-hmm. Read our book. Read uh, the book. <laughs> um, okay, last one from Nick. This is also kind of a throwback to an earlier era of baseball question. How would the baseball experience change if player contracts weren't made public and the only people who knew contract details were the 30 GMs slash owners and the individual players? In other words, the contracts themselves would stay the same as they are now, but the media and fans wouldn't know how much and for how long players were signed, and teammates wouldn't know how much more slash less they were being paid compared to one another. So obviously this is the way it once was, but that was mostly in the reserve clause era where you didn't really have a lot of long-term contracts and the money wasn't anything like what it is now. So it would be different now. I wonder whether this would keep salaries down. It would be totally different than it was when salaries were not public in the past, when baseball players made normal people salaries or close to it. Now it feels like we are entitled to know. We deserve to know because it's such a huge commitment if you sign a David Price or I mean can you imagine if the Red Sox signed David Price and you didn't know how long he was going to be a Red Sox <laughs> just like we have David Price for an unspecified amount of time
1: yeah you you'd have to know the years you can't yeah. plan you can't be in, engaged in the planning
0: yeah. of your team
1: if you don't know how long you have control of those players right and that's that's to see some degree true of the dollars but much less the dollars are negotiable the years though are those are real the, whether the player exists in your team's roster is just binary i think that you would see more players choosing to go to teams based on the uh, avocado factor i think that there would be a lot I, th- I i actually do think that more players would choose soft factors non-monetary factors in making the decisions if the Dollars weren't public. I think that, to some degree, having it be public puts pressure on. Well, for one thing, it puts pressure on you uh, to, uh, you know, to support your union. But also, it it becomes more than about the money. It becomes about your status and about winning and about being the best and about putting yourself in that tier with other players in that tier. And if it were all private, I I imagine that some players would probably be a little less focused about getting $1 more than other people. Mm-hmm. So that would that would affect the business. I mean it'd be nice, I think to be honest, to, to be able to write about the David Price signing and not even have to think about the dollars. <laughs> yeah, that'd be Like great. it'd be a lot it'd be a lot more fun as a writer if when David Price signed you could just write a 1500 word piece extolling the greatness of David Price and not have to even Think about it as an economics decision. But that's just me. That's just selfish. I don't know if it's better or worse reading. Uh, I don't know that Vernon Wells gets booed so much if he's – nobody knows what he gets paid. But I also think that probably – well, for one thing, these dollar figures are not actually released. They're – they're leaked.
0: Right. Right, Yeah. It's impossible to imagine anything not leaking. (laughs) Right. And so,
1: so yeah, it's like, it's not like there's a rule that when you sign a guy, you put it in the press release. Teams won't even confirm officially most of the time. And so it would probably happen anyway. But I would, I wonder how good we'd be at guessing. Like, I wonder if every Angels fan who would have known how much Vernon Wells was getting, because we're, we would get, we would sort of know, we would have a pretty good sense of, how much everybody got paid. Like we would know when he signed that extension, we would be able to assume that he was paid a lot for it and we would still know he was bad. And maybe it wouldn't matter at all. Maybe it's all expectations and just the the idea that he's worse than he used to be would be enough for fans to hate him.
0: Yeah, and I don't know, players would talk. Players would know what they were making, I think. Players would have some sense, I I would think. So, and teams would probably, I mean, this would kind of encourage I don't know if it would encourage collusion, but it would definitely encourage knowledge sharing among teams, I would think, because there'd just be so much less awareness of what the market was, or you'd you'd always want to be pumping people for info. What did you give this guy? just to know what you should give this guy. So I don't know. That would be sort of a a danger area. You would have fewer players getting scapegoated for seasons, I suppose, or you'd have fewer guys be uh, targets because of their salaries. I mean, you would know who is making the most money anyway, but maybe if you didn't have the specific number, it would be a a little hard to hate them. So that's all I can think of. Yeah, Uh, me too. All right. So that's it for today. Good emails, still some good ones left over. Please keep sending good ones at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. I mean,
1: Ben, Ben, it just seems to me that trades wouldn't make any sense at all unless you knew (laughs) roughly how much guys made. And so that would create a need in the baseball information marketplace to be able to estimate with pretty good confidence what guys are making relative to each other. Mm-hmm. And so it probably wouldn't really change anything at all. Like I think we'd be able to piece together with about like 90% accuracy how much guys were making. Mm-hmm. And it, it would I think it would almost have almost zero zero effect. Now the more I think about it the more I think no effect. <laughs> yeah. Except except for the occasional avocado signing.
0: Right. Okay. And You can support our sponsor, the Play Index, which we used for much of this episode, used to make Jonah Carey's week. And you can do that yourself. Find some Expos fun facts for him. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And we'll be back tomorrow.